The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man with a reminder that Al Necci is a pimple. Here is the captain. Yeah, some people call me a podcast host, but we know the truth. I'm an architect. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are featuring Unichrome from Pipeworks Brewing Company. This is a double IPA with three different kinds of hops and lush aromas of guava and tangerine. I love it. Four and a half bottle caps out of five. And let's go down under for a long distance. Cheers to Nathan Weston from the Sunshine Coast, Australia. And a big we like your jib to Luke in Sanctuary Point, Australia. Next up, here's a cheers to Shelby in Friendswood, Texas. And a big cheers goes to Palmer in St. Louis, Missouri. Next, we have a cheers to Margie Dean in Parts Unknown. And last but certainly not least, we have a big Ron Swanson please and thank you that goes out to Laurel Finger. Everyone we just mentioned went to TrueCrimeGarage.com and helped us out with this week's beer fund. Yeah, ban the van. B-W-E-R-R-U-N, Beer Run, for everything true crime. Check out our website, truecrimegarage.com. Make sure you sign up on the mailing list. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. With a Zenith Ducat missing and then found dead and murdered. We have a lot of eyewitnesses. We have a composite sketch. We're going to have all hands on deck with this case to get answers for this murdered eight-year-old. There are many eyewitnesses, so there are many suspects, but we're going to go over 
the most likely suspects here today. And you nailed it, Captain. This is a situation where we have everybody that's coming out of the woodwork wanting to help, wanting to assist, wanting to find justice for this little girl and for the girl's family. And the thing is, we've said this a dozen times on this show, and it rings true. It rings true when you review these cases, no matter what year that they are from. When somebody kills a child, abducts a child and kills them, it is not just a crime against that victim, the victim's family. It is ultimately a crime against an entire community. And that's exactly what you see here. People that just want to try to help in any shape or form that they can, small or large. So we're going to have a lot of eyewitnesses. We're going to have a lot of people come forward with some suspicions. And as you know, Captain, when they release a composite sketch to the public, that's going to drum up even more tips and more theories that will come about. We're going to see hundreds of people interviewed. We're going to see dozens of people be rumored to be suspects. But at the end of the day, there's only a couple of good suspects. And we will start with the ones of note, the more prominent ones, the ones that were mentioned in the newspapers, and we'll work our way from the outside in, let's say. So a name that will be familiar to a lot of our longtime listeners is Robert Buell. Robert Buell was a child killer. He was a rapist. He was a torturer. He was a horrible, despicable individual. Now he's arrested in 1983. So he's out and he's up to no good during the time frame that Isina Dukat is killed in 1980. Kelly Ann Prosser is another name that our longtime listeners might recognize. Kelly Ann Prosser was another eight-year-old girl who was abducted and killed two years later after Isina Dukat. That case remained unsolved for a long time. That case is interesting to Asina's case because it took place two years after, but just a short distance away. Asina Dukat was killed in Upper Arlington, Ohio, and Kellyanne Prosser was abducted from her neighborhood, which was near the OSU campus in Columbus, Ohio. So for a long time, there were people that thought that maybe these two cases could be connected because Asina is still unsolved to this day, and Kellyanne Prosser's case took a long time to solve. And in fact, Robert Buell was highly suspected in Kellyanne Prosser's case. In fact, so much so that they, he was considered by many to be the prime suspect. Now, we told you in our episodes, which we titled When the Demons Came Out, it was a four-part series that we did in January of 2021, episodes 459 through 462. We cover Kellyanne Prosser's case as well as the cases against Robert Buell. Robert Buell didn't have anything to do with Kellyanne Prosser. And in fact, Columbus PD and the individuals investigating Robert Buell and his crimes said that they could find no connection, nothing linking Robert Buell to Columbus, Ohio for 1982 or 1980 when Kellyanne and Asenath were killed. We now know all of these years later that it was in fact Harold Warren Jarrell who killed Kellyanne Prosser. And that was announced in June of 2020. Again, if you want more information on those cases, go back and listen to When the Demons Came Out. This was the first person that was known to have killed somebody and be mentioned in the paper. And be, we're being told, the public, this guy's being looked at in this case and this other case. He's now being looked at in Columbus cases after they apprehend him in 1983. 
Of course, we know that they move on from Robert Buell in these two cases. They can't move on from him in other cases that took place in Northeast Ohio, though, because he was too busy up there to be down here. If you check out that four-part series, you're going to find out that this guy is an absolute monster. And any time that you have a similar type victim, he's going to be brought up, especially if the crime happened early 80s in Ohio. Yes, instead of looking at somebody so far away, let's look at somebody closer to the crime scene, closer to where all of this went down. And we're going to use that based off of a profile that is put together of Asinas Killer. Now, this is directly from a website called longwalkhomeua.com. And I recommend that you go there and check out what they've done on a Asinas case because we are only going to be able to cover a fraction of what they cover on their website. They've been looking at this case for a very long time, putting together very good work on this case. And rather than reinvent the wheel here, I will read a portion of their website now. This is under Chapter 4, titled A Brutal Rapist and Killer in Upper Arlington. And it says, Almost immediately, the UAPD believed Asinas Killer was local to Upper Arlington. He, the killer, is very familiar with the area. If he's not a local, he lives very close to the area. This is based off of statements given by the Upper Arlington Police Chief in June of 1980 to the newspaper. Just think about how eerily similar that sounds to the words from Doug Carter in the Delphi case. This belief was bolstered by two psychological profiles the police received in July of 1980. The profiles described a young man 17 to 19 years old who lives within two miles of the scene of the slaying. This is based off of a retired New York City homicide detective who prepared one of these profiles. The thing here is, additionally, Captain, it did not take long for the Upper Arlington Police Department to believe that Asinas' murder was the same man who attacked the nine-year-old girl on May 7th, 1980, that other attack that we've referenced a couple of times. And police and the media noted the following similarities between the two crimes. Asina Ducat was an eight-year-old girl with brown hair. The victim in the May 7th attack was a nine-year-old girl with brown hair. Both crimes happened at similar times of the day, when both girls were walking home from school. The crimes occurred just slightly more than two miles from each other. According to one account, both crimes occurred within a half mile of Route 33 and forested areas. Similarly, another account stated both crimes happened in large open areas sheltered from view and less than a half block from Route 33. Route 33 is also that Riverside Drive. Both girls were choked or strangled. A red 10-speed bicycle was seen in the vicinity of both crimes. Both girls were near their homes when the crimes occurred. Police believe both girls were attacked near the street and then moved to a location several hundred feet away. Both attacks were sexually motivated. An unsuccessful attempt was made to assault the May 7th victim, and Asenath was raped. The description and sketch of Asenath Ducat's murder was similar to the sketch from the May 7th attack. Because of these similarities, the chief of police said the best suspect police have in Asenath slaying is an unknown man who is also being sought for the assault May 7th of a 10-year-old girl. 
who was attacked when she returned home from Tremont Elementary School. This murder is going to disrupt the local landscape, and we're going to get other departments involved, one of them being the FBI, and we're going to be able to get a profile of who they think the killer is. Yeah, there's several done over the years. We have the FBI with probably the most definitive profile, which is received by Upper Arlington Police in 1990. According to this profile, Asina's killer was a loner in his early 20s with few friends, was from a family with a strict abusive father and protective mother, had one or more sisters who were more successful and received more recognition from their parents, failed in school or work because he was not accepted by fellow students and employees, may have sought treatment for depression, has attacked others but not necessarily killed them, is physically strong and tends to choke or hit his victims. What makes the most sense to me, and I don't know if you agree with this, Colonel, but to put together both of these profiles so we look for some of these characteristics in this individual, but also local law enforcement believes this person is local within two miles of the murder scene. Yeah, and I'm going to go just beyond that two miles there. But keep in mind, we also have, if in fact, Asina's killer and the attacker from the May 7th attack are one and the same, then we actually have crime scenes that are a couple miles apart anyway. So that we have to create a radius around both of those crime scenes which will balloon us out a little bit further than just that straight-up two-mile radius from a Cena's murder scene. What we have here, what we just reviewed is, to me, you know, we've been told this by John Douglas. When you go into profile a killer, really the best way to do that is you have to profile everything. You have to profile the killer. You profile the victim. You profile the area and the situation. Well, here, when I review those profiles, I'm seeing two different things. One, where we have somebody profiling the actual crimes, the, the crimes that took place, and coming up with an assessment and a hypothesis based off of what they see from the known facts of those crimes. The other, what we have, is a psychological makeup of what our killer is or who our killer is and his background. And so we want to look for somebody that fits that psychological profile but also fits the physical proximity profile that was put together in the other cases. So to do that, unfortunately, we have to bring up a disgusting individual that we've never, I don't believe we talked about him before on this show. Yeah, I don't want to keep making fun of Bob Ruff publicly. And that would be child killer David Elliott Penton. Now, David Elliott Penton is a serial child killer. And unfortunately... His address at the time when Asina Ducat was killed was roughly four to five miles from the crime scene. Now, this individual, if in fact he did kill Asina, it likely would be his first murder because his murders all took place later. Now, the thing that scares the hell out of me about the date of the attack on Asina is around this same time, David Elliott Penton, who was in the military, was shipped off to Korea. Well, why does that scare me? It scares me for two reasons. One, it could take him completely out of the area, and he's not here. He did not have the physical ability to be here to commit the crime, so then he's not a suspect. The flip side of that coin is 
a very dangerous, sick individual knew he was going away to a place far away for a long period of time and likely fantasized about these types of crimes for a long period of his life before he started committing them and may have seen an opportunity to, hey, I can act on some of these fantasies. And guess what? Within days, I'm out of Dodge, baby. I'm on the other side of the planet. Now, I could not confirm the exact date of when he was transferred overseas. That would be very important. Now, his physical makeup, his psychological makeup, I should say, does fit with the psychological profile of a Cena Ducat's killer. Penton was a loner. Penton did live in a situation where his sister was more successful than he was. In fact, he was held back a grade and decided, I'm going to drop out of high school because it would be embarrassing if I'm in the same grade as my younger sister. He was raised by a mother and a stepfather. And again, they're addressed very close to this area. But unfortunately, we can't pinpoint exactly when he was transferred. His crimes are almost identical to one another. His future crimes. He would abduct a child in his vehicle, take them to another location where they would be killed. So if I'm picking up what you're putting down, what you're saying is if he is responsible for this murder, for Ducat's murder, this would actually be his first murder based on his known criminal activity. That's correct. The thing is, I believe that this method that he used, he used it time and time again and probably every single time. And a large portion of that statement is true based off of his known criminal activity. We know it to be fact. Where I have a problem with him being a suspect is I see some movements of the real suspect, of, of, of what I think the suspect and who I think the suspect is. And the movements of the victim don't really ring true with David Pinton's other crimes and murders. Because I've said this here before, Captain, and I'll say it again. I have never seen a sexually motivated child abduction and murder where the perpetrator comes into an area, removes the victim, and kills them or brings them back and then kills them and leaves them in the same area where they're abducted from. We can go based off of witness statements and the scent dog that traced her movements that day that she was roughly killed in very close proximity to where the abduction took place. Right. It wouldn't make any sense for David Penton to come into this area, abduct her, and then bring her right back. He would have taken her elsewhere and dumped her in an area where there was nobody out there, where he couldn't be seen, his vehicle couldn't be identified. Well, this location where she's found, it, it's very strange anyways because it's very close to a major road when just a block away, if this person was local and, and knew the area well, lived within two miles, within a couple blocks is a little bit of a wooded area. You'd think... You think if they're going to leave her body somewhere, maybe that's where they would leave it. Yeah. Again, it doesn't make any sense to me for anyone, including David Elliott Penton, to have a vehicle and be able to abduct someone and then take them with him only to return them later. It just, it just doesn't ring true. That's not typically how these crimes are committed. 
Now, I know I said the same statement in our Lynn Harper episodes, and someone said, well, what about the Lindbergh baby? Well, that's not a sexually motivated abduction. That was a money-motivated abduction where the killers were idiots and dropped the baby off of the ladder. So it's not anywhere in the same neighborhood of the same type of crime. David Elliott Penton's crimes are in the same neighborhood, but he is not from the same neighborhood and would never have returned a victim back to the neighborhood in which he took the victim. So I think we have to look at some individuals that a are closer in proximity to a scene at Ducat and the crime scene and also individuals or an individual that may have not had the same means may not have had a vehicle to transport the victim. And that is why she is found so close to where the abduction took place. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. 
save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Slap of the bass. Cheers, Captain. You guys want to do me a solid? Do me a big solid. Go to Spotify and look up our show, True Crime Garage. You can listen to the podcast on Spotify, but you can also follow our music as well. So you can go and follow our profile. Just go to Spotify and search True Crime Garage, and it'll pop up as a podcast or artist. Go to the artist page and click follow. That would be lovely and smoochy, smoochy. You can jam the garage music at the gym or in your car. How about that? All right, back to the case here, Captain. We're going to move rather quickly because we got a lot of ground to cover here in the second half of today's show. And that is because we're going to get into some very good suspects. Now, why are they very good suspects? Because they fit some of the physical evidence that we know to be in this murder case. Now, the first individual, his name is Brett Strutner. 
and I've heard it pronounced Strutner or Strutner. I say potato, you say potato. For this, for the sake of argument, let's continue with Strutner. I say potato. So Brett Strutner, he gets onto police radar because of a tip, actually a couple tips that come in that say, Hey, you might want to look at this guy. He's been behaving very strange since the murder took place. Now, interestingly enough, at the time of the murder, he lives about a mile and a half from the corner of Waltham and Hillside. So he's very close in proximity. He fits the proximity of the first profile and he fits the profile, the, the psychological profile that we see as well. And this is how he gets onto the radar of police. The night of the murder, Brett is at a bar with some of his friends. This bar is near the Ohio State University campus. And at the bar, he's seen crying or weeping. And he told other people at the bar that he was afraid to go back to his apartment, that he could not go home because they are after me. And when he is finally returned to his home via a friend's vehicle, he says he does not want to enter his apartment because again, they are after me. So we have an anonymous phone call that makes its way to the upper Arlington police department that is telling them about this suspect's behavior on that night. Why is this guy acting so weird, so strange, so paranoid the night after a murder takes place in the area? Keep in mind, this is a safe area where they don't have, they don't commonly have murders taking place. Like you said, he lives within the vicinity of what the profile says that this killer possibly could live in. Once this guy's on the radar, we have eyewitnesses coming forward saying he could have been there as early as 2 p.m. Yeah, in the direct area of the crime scene. And keep in mind here, when we talk about crime scene, there are multiple crime scenes in an abduction and murder case, right? So we have the crime scene of where the abduction took place. We know that there was some type of sexual assault in this case. So we have a location, another crime scene where that assault took place. And then later we have the scene of where the body is located. So we have multiple crime scenes that we're dealing with, but we also have witnesses that are saying this guy could have been as close as the corner in which I believe that she was later abducted on the same day that she was abducted. So now we got this guy who's behaving oddly and we can put him in the area with some different witnesses, but we also learn another interesting fact about this individual. He owns a red 10 speed bicycle and it's reported that at some point in the summer of 1980, he decides to quit riding it. He doesn't want to ride it anymore. According to some of his friends statements that are later given to police, which is similar to the idea that a killer will change their appearance. Maybe they shave their beard. Maybe they grow a beard. Maybe, or if a vehicle is involved in a crime, hey, they stop driving that vehicle, they sell it, they get a new one. They get a paint job is pretty common as well. Right. Our suspect, Brett Strutner, on June 5th, 1980, so this is two days after the homicide, he is out with some friends, and he's, again, dropping these strange lines of, are the cops coming after me? If these cops don't quit, quit harassing me, I'm going to kill them. 
And then he goes home to his home, his parents' home, actually, that same night, and he takes his parents' vehicle, and then he flees the area, driving north toward Cleveland. The following morning, at 7.45 a.m., police find him stranded on the side of the road in this vehicle in Willoughby, Ohio. He is losing his mind. He is telling people, hey, people are after me. He takes his parents' car. He heads north to Willoughby. That's a good two and a half hours away. If that's not suspicious, I don't know what is. When we reviewed Ed Kemper and when we reviewed BTK, both of them said the same thing about their early murders, that when they first committed them, they thought just within minutes the police would be on their way that they would hear sirens, that everybody knew exactly what they did, who was guilty, and that they were going to be on their way to lock them up as quickly as possible. And in both cases, we know that didn't happen. In fact, Ed Kemper called the police after he killed his grandparents. This behavior is not unlike that, where this guy was involved in something, and he's saying to everybody that's willing to listen, I think the cops are after me. I think the police are harassing me. They are going to get me. I can't go back to my house flees the area to get out of Dodge. When the police find him, and I'll read from the description of what went down here in Willoughby, Ohio, because you can't make this stuff up. The truth is stranger than fiction, my friends. So the report from the long walk home reads as follows. On the morning of June 6th at approximately 7.40 a.m., police received a call from a nearby Sunoco station that a car was in a ditch on the St. Clair exit between Lost Nation and Erie Road. Upon arrival, the first patrolman discovered a 1979 Cadillac in a ditch with Brett Strutner lying across the front seat. After he wakes up the subject, I guess this is from knocking on the window, he then asked Brett to open up the door or the window to the vehicle. Brett would not open either. In fact, he tries to flee again. He's trying to start the vehicle so he can get out of this location, get away from this police officer. At this time, the police officer's vehicle was in a position that would block any type of escape from Brett as he's in the vehicle. Now we have the patrolman who's trying to get the vehicle unlocked so he can get to Brett, the driver. At this time, the suspect produced a hypo syringe or hypodermic needle, I guess, and took out his testicles and began stabbing the syringe into them. Sounds like a delightful afternoon. At this time, we have another patrolman who's trying to break the window of the vehicle with his nightstick, and he eventually is successful. Now we have our suspect, Brett, who begins screaming and fighting with the officers. It takes about four officers to bring this guy in, right? They spray him with mace that has no effect at all. Eventually, after a real brouhaha, they're on the side of the road. They eventually apprehend Brett Strutner and they take him into their custody. And they're going to have a whole list of charges to hit this guy with, right? He's assaulted basically all four of these police officers. And he's also in possession of this hypodermic needle. There's all kinds of things going on here. And he assaulted his testicles. Now, what we have happen is the Upper Arlington Police Department, they're going to send two of their 
detectives up to interview Brett Strutner, who is sitting at the Lake County Sheriff's Office. He's probably not sitting too comfortably. This, mind you, is after a statement from one of the correction officers at the jail that says that he overheard Strutner say, quote, I killed an eight-year-old girl. So we have the Upper Arlington police detective there asking questions to Brett. And during the course of the questioning, the detectives tell him, we are simply trying to figure out where you were on June 3rd, 1980. To which his response is, I didn't hurt anyone. Okay, they're not asking him about the murder. They've not told him that they are there investigating a murder or an abduction. They're simply asking him where he was on that day. And his response is, I did not hurt anyone. This suspect is what I like to call a wackadoo. But if we took the time to go through every crazy statement he made, we'd have to do like a six-part series on this. I mean, this guy is a real wackadoo. Yeah, and if you review his statement and his interview with police, we learn a few things. He admits to owning a red bicycle. He also admits that he knows where Frankenstein's cave is located. In fact, he says that he had been there on multiple occasions. And without giving a pinpointed time here, he basically admits to being in the general area of where the crime took place on June 3rd, 1980. So we have a guy that's behaving oddly. He puts himself near or at the crime scene on the day that the crime took place. This is a good suspect, and he doesn't look unlike the sketch, the composite that they've already released to the public. We also have eyewitnesses that say they see somebody matching his description in this area around the time that a Zenith went missing. So this guy's a good suspect. Now, we need to go back to the timeline. We talked about the timeline that was put together by Detective Time. Let's expand that timeline out days rather than just the minute by minute that Detective Time gave us. So let's go to September 27th, 1980. This is just a couple months after the murder. On this date, we have another attack, an abduction attempt that takes place at Olentangy Commons apartment complex, which is not terribly far from the Asenath Ducat crime scene. In this situation, we have a victim who is pulled from her bike. The suspect attempted to drag her toward a secluded field, but the suspect dropped the victim and ran away when a passerby saw the abduction and screamed for help. The victim assisted the police by having a sketch made of the suspect. The sketch was very similar to the sketch provided by the witness to the Asina Ducat suspect. Okay, we have to then back up to the first attack, the May 7th, 1980 attack that took place just one month before Asina's attack. On this date, an unidentified victim took the bus from her Tremont Elementary School at the end of her school day. After exiting the bus on Canterbury Lane, she started on her walk home with another female friend. A boy or a young man riding a red bicycle passed by them, back and forth, a few times. When the female friend eventually had to start walking in a different direction to her own home, 
The 11-year-old girl was suddenly attacked and strangled into unconsciousness. However, she was never raped. When she regained consciousness, the suspect was gone. It is believed that the suspect was scared off by the victim's friend or someone else. I've also seen reports that state he may have been scared off by a neighbor dog. It's uh, pretty scary to imagine to know that there's this horrible people out there. Correct. So one of these attacks takes place before a Zenith's attack, and the other takes place afterward. And in both situations, police have reason to believe that the attacker was scared off. Now, in the September 27th attack, an individual named Robert Chris Winchester was convicted of the attempted kidnapping. Robert Chris Winchester was sentenced to three to ten years at Mansfield Prison in order to undergo psychiatric evaluation. Let's go back to the May 7th, 1980 attack. That crime went unsolved, but the victim of that crime picked out Robert Chris Winchester from a lineup related to the September 27th, 1980 abduction case. Winchester was never charged or prosecuted for that case. However, we must note that the victim picks him out of a lineup. So we have this Robert Chris Winchester who is convicted of a very similar crime that takes place just months after Asinas murder and also the number one prime suspect in a crime that took place in a very similar crime that took place in a similar location just one month before Asinas attack. Maybe we could get Strutner to take a syringe to this guy's testicles as well. So here's what the problem ends up being, Captain. You hear the old statement from the old football coaches that say, when you have two quarterbacks, you have zero quarterbacks. Right. Well, this is a similar situation, but the flip side of that, where in June, we have one suspect that they like a lot, this Brett Strutner. Well, now in September of 1980, we have another suspect that they like a lot, this Robert Chris Winchester. And, oh, as it turns out, he, too, owns a red bicycle. He, too, matches the description of a man or men in their 20s, early 20s, seen in the area of the Asina Ducat crime scene on June 3rd, 1980. So now we have two really good suspects. The thing here is that doesn't mean that they cancel each other out or that one should cancel out the other, because what is later learned is that these two went to school together. They grew up together. They lived on the same street. They were neighbors. It's not out of bounds to make the assumption that these two were friends. We know that they knew each other. Is there a chance that the two of them were up to no good together on the day that Asenath was abducted? They both match the description. They both have a criminal history. Winchester's crimes almost mirror the Ducat abduction and they both were believed to possibly be in the area so one of these suspects is deranged the other suspect is a pedophile it's very possible because these two individuals live close together that they would hang out together at some point not only that we have winchester who is convicted of a very similar crime and prime suspect in another crime that almost mirrors a senus abduction now we have Strutner, who is blabbing to everybody that he 
at least believes that he is guilty of something. He's telling everybody that the police are after him. He says when he's in lockup that he killed an eight-year-old girl. So I'm starting to see something that maybe the police didn't fully see. I think that they did eventually, but maybe not in 1980. I think some of the confusion and some of the problems with this case and with this investigation is that it just wasn't so simple. It wasn't as simple as man abducts girl, kills girl, flees the area. I think that we have a situation where we may have more than one individual involved and because they won't rat on each other or because that they may even help each other in some form or fashion on these, uh, on covering up this crime, that it's not so easy to detect what exactly happened that day. Both of these suspects are good suspects. Both live close to the crime scene. Both fit the profile in different ways and both not cooperative with police. The other problem here too, Captain, is we have Brett who seems to have been in the area based off of eyewitness accounts and he puts himself in the area at the time of the crime. And then the flip of that is we have Winchester who, again, not cooperative, but is coming up with potential alibis for his whereabouts that day and none of them check out. So he's lying about his whereabouts on that day. Well, why would he do that? Clearly, he's got something to cover up. One of the things that you were talking about earlier is the eyewitnesses seeing the red bike. So then police have this one suspect and they go, well, he has a red bike. And then this other suspect, he has a red bike. Well, at some point in my life when I was a child, I had probably two bikes. One was probably an older bike that maybe I outgrew and then got a mountain bike or something like that. But red isn't an uncommon color for a bicycle. So I'll start to try to paint a picture of what I think possibly happened on that afternoon within that four hour time window that we started off with on yesterday's episode. I want to be clear here. I'm not the first to come up with a theory that is similar to this. There have been a lot of good people that have done gangbusters work on this case. Most of them, the people from the long walk home website. This is a theory my theory is similar to theirs and to other theories that have been recently suggested. And when you look at the crime scenes, along with the physical evidence that we have, you will see that this theory carries some weight. First off, let's go back to Sini's route that she was taking home. When she got onto Waltham Road, she would have simply made a right to travel north up Malvern and go directly to her home. However, when the scent dog tried to retrace Sini's footsteps, the dog went south. Instead of turning right onto Malvern, made a left and went south of Waltham. Now, even more south of that, later, some of Sini's Papers from school and her umbrella were were found in this general area. This is a concealed area, a wooded area, forest area, forested area. I believe that they found her belongings there because instead of making a right onto Malvern, something made her change her direction. And I believe that's when they tried to grab her. Somebody tried to grab her or started to approach her 
She didn't like the situation and she turned and she started to head south away from her home simply to get away from whoever this was. She's out by herself. I think that at some point she gets chased down and where she is apprehended by these individuals is where we find some of her belongings later. I think that we probably are dealing with more than one abductor. And I don't think that our abductor had a vehicle. He may have had a bicycle. His partner in crime may have had a bicycle as well. One could have been on foot. It's hard to say, but we have several witnesses that see a red bicycle near this crime scene. Now, the reason why I don't think that the abductor had a vehicle is because if they did, they simply would have taken her put her in the vehicle and drove to a location that would provide whatever privacy that they wanted for whatever they intended to do. That would make sense if we would find her body later at a location far from her neighborhood. Yeah, I agree. But what we do know takes place is that within that four hour window at the end of it, her body is found in her neighborhood and actually just about, a hundred feet, maybe a football field away from where I believe she was abducted. Well, why would anybody place her there? We know that she was killed at that location where she was found based off of all of the police reports and the police findings. But what I think happened here, captain, there were always rumors. There were always stories. There were always theories that maybe she was attacked in that forested area, in that wooded area. Maybe she was attacked on the other side of 33 of Riverside Drive. The problem with that, with those theories, is that if she was attacked in those areas and assaulted in those areas, the individual who decided to kill her would have just killed her and simply left her there. There would be no need to transport the victim anywhere. It's only adding to the risk level of the criminal's behavior. Yeah, I agree. Because once you go to move that victim, more eyewitnesses could see you. But what we do have is witnesses that say that we see or may have seen a male white carrying an unconscious girl or an injured girl or an injured little kid. I think what we have here is a situation where she was was attacked and grabbed and transported to a secluded area, but that secluded area was either a home or someone's backyard. And I believe that it was probably a home very close to where she was abducted from. The reason why somebody would then transport her body later is because she is attacked in an area, assaulted in an area where they needed to get her out of there. We've talked about on this show so many times what a big problem it is for the criminal to have an abducted victim alive or otherwise in their vehicle. That's a big problem for the criminal. It's also a big problem to have an individual abducted alive or otherwise in their home or in their backyard. And so when the search started going down for Sini and people started looking for her, somebody or some buddies knew I have to get this out of here and get this away from my property or from this area that I took her to or the property that I took her to. Why? Because all roads lead back to me. 
or my helper. And I think, unfortunately, what happened here, Captain, is I don't think that the police were wrong. It's so obvious that, unfortunately, she was killed where she was found. I agree. But we've also covered this plenty of times on this show. And we've reviewed the comments and the statements of victims who survive an attempted murder, as well as murderers who say, you know what? It's more difficult to strangle someone to death than you realize. Or I have attempted to strangle somebody and then eventually they came to. I think wherever she was assaulted, someone strangled her and believed that they had successfully killed her. She was then moved away from that person's property or their friend's property with the attempt to conceal her body by removing it from that location to try to put her, place her inside that culvert to conceal the body. When she was placed on the rocks before they could move her in there, she wakes up. She comes to. They weren't successful strangling her. And it was in that moment that one individual picked up that rock and Unfortunately, they killed this little girl. Yeah, animals. The crime scene suggests a couple of things. One, we would learn that there is scientific, physical evidence that proves that Struttner was involved. That he had contact with the victim on the day that she was killed. That places him with the victim. That places him at the crime scene. Now, there were footprints that were found in this area. These footprints do not eliminate our other suspect, Winchester, from being at the crime scene, at the murder scene. However, that would probably leave us with a potential third or fourth perpetrator. If these two guys did this together, they had to take her somewhere nearby. And they had to take her somewhere that they would want to not leave her there. And therefore, the most sensible, reasonable answer, the most logical answer would be that they took her to someone's home, to someone's property nearby. And probably rather close to where she was ultimately found just before 7.30 p.m. So your thought is that it's at least these two individuals, maybe possibly one more individual involved in this crime. With the way that the movements of the victim and her belongings, where they're found, and then some of the physical evidence that we know to be true in this case, yes, that's what I see here as being the most likely scenario to play out. Again, I think where the problem was is that we have a crime scene that the police just did not understand. They didn't understand that we might be looking for two perpetrators or more. We didn't understand that she may have been moved to a other, to another location. They understood that that's their own words. So we believe that she was moved elsewhere. Right. But again, why would you move to a vehicle? If you move to a vehicle, you're simply going to be parked on the side of the road somewhere in this neighborhood. I feel like that's awfully difficult to happen. And I also feel like the best suspects per the newspaper reports of 1980 and even after that, both of these guys are on bicycles. 
and so didn't have the means to be using a vehicle. We also have statements from other witnesses later that would come forward saying things like one of the suspects that we named, his bike was seen in a garage in a home that was within walking distance of where the body was found. Yeah, and when you look at it on a map, you're like, wow, that's extremely close. There are witnesses that came forward that said that one of these suspects, if not both of them, were hanging out with somebody that lived very close to where the body was found. So when you compile all of this information and you look at the totality of it all put together, it starts to you start to see a picture and you start to see how this thing could have played out. And it's a rather simple answer. And again, I'm not the first one to come up with this. And I know that my theory is not exactly spot on with some others that have been released. But that's why you'll want to review some more information at the longwalkhomeua.com and form your own opinion. Take a look at the maps. Take a look at the physical evidence. Or just listen and believe everything we say. That works too. With all this time, with all this evidence, with all these eyewitnesses, with all this demand for answers, why don't we have somebody locked up and held responsible for these crimes? This case gets complicated. And I know that there are people out there that say, hey, the cops really screwed this one up. That was even the title of a newspaper article that said, Experts say police bungled this case, and maybe they did. Maybe they did. I can only tell you what I have seen. What I see is a rather complicated case where there were several people involved that it would be difficult to it would be difficult to figure out that there were multiple people involved. It's kind it reminds me a lot of the Martha Moxley case, where you had all of these years go by, decades go by. This girl's killed in her own neighborhood. There were multiple people that were suspected. And in the end, when you really put the pieces together, it's a much simpler case than you would think. Right. When you look at Sini's case, I feel like it's the same thing. Once you know all of the pieces and the moving parts, it's actually a much more simple case than it would appear on June 3rd, 1980 and June 4th, 1980. In June 5th, 1980, there are going to be things that the officers, that the detectives saw at this location, at the crime scene, that just didn't make sense. And it made it hard for them to put together the complete story. Why didn't they make sense? Well, because there were more people involved than they thought. And once you put it together, now it seems like it's, it's pretty clear. But let's add to the fact some other complexities that take place in this case. You have one of the main suspects, Brett Strutner, who committed suicide four years after the Ducat murder. And yes, he was in and out of jail for some time. He continued to have problems, but ultimately he jumps out of a window. I believe it was the sixth floor at the YMCA building, downtown Columbus. Not high enough. In 1984. They find the door to his room locked, the window wide open, and his body outside on the ground. 
they don't find anything of importance to this case. You know, when when they're responding to this, when law enforcement are responding to this call, you know they're hoping that he wrote out a written confession before he jumped out the window. Right. Or find evidence of the victim or that crime or other crimes in his room. That didn't happen. Well, then the problem then becomes that one of your prime suspects is now gone. He wasn't cooperating before, but now you're going to get zero cooperation out of this individual. Well, no more ball stab. Winchester ended up serving time for that September 1980 attack. And he did over a year, I believe about two years or so on that attack. Obviously, he's not cooperated as well. And there may be another individual or two out there that played a role in this. And we just don't have all the facts from them either. It's really, truly a sad case for the neighborhood, for the Ducat family. There has been no justice in this case. And I wouldn't go so far to blame police. Had a monster not taken this girl's life or monsters, we would never have this discussion to begin with. I think that there were some people that worked very hard on this case and cared a lot about Asenath and her family and tried and did everything they possibly could. I don't see a situation where the police put on blinders. They called in the FBI. They sent physical evidence to the FBI. They asked for people with better resources for their help. And unfortunately, I think it's just one of those cases that... I'm not very confident that this thing gets solved or solved the right way. Anytime there's a crime where we think there's multiple people involved, it's more likely that somebody's going to talk and we're going to hear rumors, rumblings. But in this case, we have one of the suspects, he's dead. One of the suspects is incarcerated. If there's another individual, then what happened to them? But I think because of those reasons is probably why we haven't heard more rumors about these people being connected. As you heard in these episodes, the Ducats, the family are wonderful people. They're some of the kindest, bravest people that I have seen, especially based off of Alexander Ducats statements in the months after his little daughter was killed. There's been no justice for the Ducats. There's been no justice for the people of this neighborhood And it's something that I hope changes and we can only hope and pray that something happens, that there is a break in this case to lead to some form of justice. I know that I, along with many other people, think of Asenath this time of year, every year, as we're letting out school, getting ready for the summer break. We think about her, we think about her case, and we think about the things that could have been done differently in this investigation. We also think about the suspects and people that are capable of this type of horrific crime. Sini is not to be forgotten. The Ducats are not to be forgotten. This crime is not to be forgotten. This is something that I hope stays with everybody until this thing can be solved. And one day somebody can be locked up and put away for what they did a long time ago.
thank you guys so much for the support and keeping the lights on. I love you like I love Hank Mardukas. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading? We do, Captain. This week we are recommending that everybody go to the longwalkhomeua.com website. It's a website dedicated to the case that we covered this week and show your support. Read what they have there. They have more than we could cover on this case this week. And also support the Asenith Ducat Project. And you can find that information at longwalkhomeua.com. And we will have that listed on our recommended page at truecrimegarage.com. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted. Where I felt adventures pulse with every step. And where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota. So little time.